0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download you can also find great books and videos for sale as well feel free to also visit our facebook page a link is provided as well on the website okay on to the episode
1: Seems you have not shaved this morning.
2: <laughs>
1: Curses, Robin. Once again, you've made a fool of me and my wicked schemes. In the lawless world of the Middle Ages, a poor man's only hope of justice lay with those bold men living lives of freedom in the forest, the legendary outlaws of medieval England. Heroes who bestrode the greenwood, fearlessly, wearing only tights and little short tunics that hardly covered their bottoms. The medieval outlaw has come to represent freedom and justice for the common man. But were there really outlaws like Robin Hood in medieval England? And if not, why do we think there were? And another thing, was the law so out of reach for ordinary people? And did the forest really represent freedom? And of course the key question, did outlaws never wear trousers? My investigation into medieval law and order starts on the trail of a real-life 14th-century outlaw gang in the tranquil village of Tea in Rutland. Sweet, isn't it? One afternoon in 1340, however, the peace and quiet of this little village was shattered by a dramatic shootout. (laughs) a group of armed men laid siege to this church. After a ferocious battle, the rector, whose place of worship it had been for 20 years, was dragged outside into the street and beheaded. But the situation wasn't quite what it might seem. The gang of armed men who slew the man of God weren't the outlaws. They were supposed to represent law and order. It was the rector who was the outlaw. His name was Richard Folville, and he was a member of that notorious gang of outlaws, the Folvilles. A generation after their deaths, the Folvilles were celebrated as the kind of outlaws who righted wrongs. One chronicle tells how they took the law into their own hands and rode out to right injustice by force of arms. Folvilles' laws became a synonym for justified robbery. So, were the Folvilles the real life Robin Hoods? Well, it'd be nice if they were, but I'm afraid not. The Folvilles were aristocratic brothers whose father was the lord of the manor of Ashby Folville. But why were the sons of nobility turning to crime? When old John de Folville died in 1310, he left his entire estate to his eldest son, which is what he did in those days. The younger sons were supposed to go into the church or join the army. In the Folville's case, however, there were another six brothers, enough to take a third alternative, form a gang and embark on a life of crime. According to local legend, this stone with its cross marks the spot where the Folvilles began their career as outlaws. For it was here that they helped murder a local bigwig. But you couldn't become an outlaw just like that. There were various requirements the Folvilles would have had to fulfil. The chief qualification for becoming an outlaw was failure to turn up for trial on three successive occasions. The Falvilles passed this test with flying colours. (laughs) It meant that from now on, they could practise as fully qualified outlaws, pursuing their trade of assault and robbery, extortion and kidnapping to fill their own pockets. And they weren't the only gangs of upper-crust gentlemen who terrorised the country. There was Sir William Chettleton's gang in Shropshire, Sir Gilbert Middleton's in Durham, and Sir Henry Leyburn's in Kent. Not to mention the Coddrell gang, who sometimes joined forces with the Polvers. These aristocratic gangs weren't robbing from the rich to give to the poor. They were career criminals, with a network of spies and informers, and with political connections. John Bromyard, the Dominican friar and preacher, complained that England was more crime ridden than any other country, mainly because of the gentry turning to crime or employing thugs to do their robbing for them. So, if the outlaws actually were the bad guys, where does that leave their traditional foe, the sheriff? The wicked sheriff. Well done. You're finally learning how to treat these animals. Then maybe I'll get a. Here in Sherwood Forest, the old melodrama is still being played out to the delight of audiences. Isn't he tall? Don't you think he's tall? Now, undoubtedly, there were sheriffs who abused their power. One sheriff of Nottingham, for example, even ran a mafia style operation in the 14th century, which involved his wife, clerk, and chaplain. But wicked sheriffs were the exception rather than the rule. I'm disappointed to have to tell you that the vast majority of sheriffs were pen pushing bureaucrats, overloaded with work and constantly grappling with a stream of writs from litigious peasants or orders from central government. They were the one man county councils of their day. We'll teach him some manners. torturing peasants and oppressing the poor. Most sheriffs were too busy organising the Home Guard or uh, tracking down regional cheeses for the royal household or a decent set of hunting dogs for the king. We like to think of this story of the outlaw as a black-and-white tale of goodies and bads. The reality was less clear-cut. During the Middle Ages, the very notion of what an outlaw was changed dramatically and so did the legal system the outlaws sought to avoid. In Anglo-Saxon England, people had been accustomed to administering the law themselves. It was sort of neighbourhood watch, but with this big difference, you could make money out of it. You see, the Anglo-Saxons weren't particularly bothered about punishments. What interested them was victim compensation. And there was a strict tariff. If the nose be mutilated, six shillings. If an ear be struck off, twelve shillings. Fifty shillings for an eye, fifty shillings for foot, and ten shillings for big toe. For each of the four front teeth, six shillings. For the tooth which stands next to them, four shillings. For that which stands next to that, three shillings. And then afterwards, for each, a shilling in the face could mean a windfall. This has to be my lucky day. Back then, to be declared an outlaw was a fearful thing indeed. People then lived in small, self-regulating communities, and to be excluded was like being sent into exile. Worse. An outlaw was a wolf's head, someone who could be killed on sight. They were forced to live a life on the run, outside normal society. But in 1066, England became an occupied nation. A legal system that depended on the cooperation of the conquered with their conquerors was simply not going to work. So the Normans introduced certain legal refinements, such as collective punishment and trial by battle. Now, a trial by battle may conjure up images of noble duels fought at dawn between expert swordsmen, but the reality was often a lot more mundane, if not downright comical. Uh, take, for example, the case of Thomas Whitehorn and James Fisher. Well, they certainly met at dawn, but the weapons the authorities provided them with were not swords. Each was given a ram's horn. Well, they did their best to kill each other with these, but after a few blows, the ram's horns broke and the pair were reduced to trying to bite each other to death. Uh, here's a contemporary account of what went on. Whitehorn got Fisher on the ground and then bit him by the member, causing him to cry out. But Fisher bounced back, got his teeth round Whitehorn's nose and poked his thumb into his eye. Well, Whitehorn cried for mercy, confessed all and was duly hanged. Uh, Fisher, for reasons best known to himself, left town and became a hermit. If that was Norman justice, the Normans could keep it. And that's what many Anglo-Saxons seem to think and they chose to be outlawed rather than stand trial. By 11.50, the whole legal system had collapsed, so Henry II totally reinvented it, developing a legal process unique to England, which put power back in the hands of the local community. Trial by jury, but not as we know it. Medieval jurors weren't chosen for their impartiality, but on the contrary, they were chosen because they knew the people involved in the case. In 1344, for example, one of the Folvilles, Alice, was acquitted in the King's Bench by a jury specially imported from here, her home village of tea. <laughs> England wasn't lawless, it was the reverse. There were too many laws governing every little detail of life. but people quickly learned how to use the law to their advantage. The common man had no need for Robin Hood to fight his corner. He had lawyers to do it for him. And the records of these proceedings, some 700 years old, make fascinating reading. How would you compare people's access to the law in the Middle Ages with people today?
3: They were extremely litigious. I mean, you think of modern-day America yeah. and medieval... Society was using the law, and aware of the law. Was the law expensive? Did it cost a lot? For poor people, there was a sort of primitive form of legal aid. You could also retain a lawyer by giving him goods uh, in kind. We have a document here which shows us that this particular person retained an attorney, paying him in fromage et beurre, <laughs> cheese and
1: butter. <laughs> cheese and butter. <laughs> Try that nowadays, you might get in <laughs> a short shift. The Royal Court was the medieval equivalent of the Old Bailey. No matter how small the case, they're all solemnly recorded in meticulous detail. This is the rules of the Court of Common Pleas, all the cases for the year in
3: that court in London. This particular one's fairly long and involved. Uh, Richard Orring, from Exeter, has brought this case all the way to London, and he alleges that the defendant, Henry Hull, has, used force and violence, Viet Armies. He came into his garden with uh, swords, bows and arrows. You can imagine the picture of, yeah, the, of the, this... The dramatic yeah. scene. Yes. yes. Yeah. Destroyed <clears> his <throat> his grass. Yeah. And when it boils down to it, he'd locked off some branches and basically gone round and collected his hedge clippings.
1: <laughs> so it's a dispute about hedge clippings. It is, yes. <laughs> with people rushing to court to sue each other over hedge clippings, more and more people were failing to turn up for trial and consequently being outlawed for non-attendance. By the mid-14th century, almost everybody seems to get outlawed at some point in their lives. It was no big deal. It was a bit like having your credit card refused. As the threat of being outlawed diminished, it became harder to force people to stand trial. That's why places like this were created. Prison. Not as a place of punishment, mind you, but as a means to force people to stand trial. Medieval prisons were privately owned and could be nice little earners. This one was built and owned by the Archbishop of York, and he made a packet out of it. Open for business in 1330, the prison at Hexham in Northumberland Was the first purpose built prison in England. Believe it or not, you had to pay to get into prison as well as pay to get out. Jailers brewed their own beer and sold it to the inmates, who also had to pay for their bedding, their food, their fuel, and their lighting. Prisoners without money were allowed out onto the streets to beg. Anything, as long as the Archbishop got his cash. Here at Hexham, there were different levels of comfort according to your wallet. The dungeon was for the penniless no windows, fresh air, or, I hesitate to tell you, toilet facilities. Whereas on the ground floor you did have a lavatory, and on the first floor you had a fireplace. Or, if you were really flush, you could live up here on the top floor with the jailer who had not only a lavatory, but two (laughs) fireplaces. Trial by jury was, curiously enough, voluntary. Mark you, if you refused to stand trial, you'd be pressed between giant stones until you either agreed to stand or died. And throughout the Middle Ages, that was really the only torture that was used in England as part of the judicial system. It wasn't to get you to confess anything or a punishment, it was simply to force prisoners to face trial. Perhaps it's no wonder a lot of people preferred to escape the system by being outlaws, especially those facing serious charges like murder. The idea of hiding out here in the Greenwood must have had its attraction. But don't go thinking being an outlaw wouldn't be all that bad, because you could always live a carefree life in the freedom of the forest. The forest was, in fact, almost the reverse of everything we think, even down to the fact that it didn't have to have trees in it. One of William's first acts as conqueror was to create the new forest. Well, I always imagined that meant he'd planted an awful lot of trees so people could enjoy a nice picnic in the shade. But no, what it actually meant was that the king grabbed vast tracts of land, including entire towns, to be his own private hunting park. To protect these parks, he imposed harsh laws known as forest law. The forest was simply wherever forest law applied. It was policed by an army of royal officials who ruthlessly enforced the draconian penalties for poaching imposed by the king. The Earl of Cardigan is the 31st hereditary warden of Savanac Forest. His family have been patrolling these woods on the lookout for
2: outlaws and poachers since the time of the conquest. Anybody of the local population ever found disturbing the king's deer was in for some horrendous punishment. Yeah. Well, What sort of things would they do to them? Well, I think the standard one was if you'd use your bow and arrow, which presumably you had to kill your deer or kill the king's deer, and you'd drawn in your bow with your two fingers, in extreme cases, you forfeited those two fingers so you could never again draw your bow on the king's deer. Oh, I So, hence the. Uh, That's apparently sir. where the expression comes from. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently, it was shown to the knights at um, Agincourt. The English archers showed their two fingers to show they could still dro- draw their bowstrings. 100 yards half left under those trees. Straight in
1: front of where you're looking now. Oh, yes. Look William the Conqueror was said to love stags as much as if he were their father. And Henry I put poaching on a par with murder. Richard
2: I set the penalty for killing deer as removal of eyes and testicles. If you owned a farm on the edge of the forest and the king's deer came out and wiped out your crop, that was all bad luck. You couldn't even fence the royal deer out of your fields. You weren't even allowed to fence them out? No, in lots of ways, the deer, were rated, the deer of the forest had more rights and privileges than the locals who lived around it.
1: Maybe that's one of the reasons why the Robin Hood stories were so popular. They celebrated a time before the conquest when the forests were a place of freedom. Since the Normans, the forests have become a place of repression and brutal punishment. But once, people had been free to hunt and gather wood here, and that was never forgotten. Losing an eye for poaching deer or having a hand cut off may seem like pretty rough justice to us. But mutilation was a fairly common penalty, and for very good reason. It was a way of not only punishing criminals, but of identifying them in the days before photo ID cards. If you saw a man without an ear, it was a fair bet he was an ex-con. In the 13th century, a certain John de Roughton lost his ear after being kicked by a horse, so he insisted on carrying a certificate around with him, stating that his earlessness was due entirely to medical causes. (laughs) Outlaws and violent criminals who faced the death penalty had plenty to choose from. It all depended where they were to be executed. In Sandown, you'd be buried alive. In Pevensey, you were thrown in the river at high tide. In Portsmouth, you were burned. And in Hastings, you'd be chucked off a cliff into the sea. Here in Halifax, you'd find yourself at the cutting edge of execution technology. The city was the proud owner of a state-of-the-art guillotine. Five hundred years before the Frenchman, Monsieur Joseph Guillotine, gave his name to it. Makes you wonder what they'd called it. You know, oh we must execute him with that thing that has no name yet. What do you mean, the guillotine? Oh shh you cannot call it that. Monsieur Guillotine has not given his name to it yet. Local residents often made reluctant executioners, so the city would resort to poetic justice. If the thief had stolen a horse or cow, a rope would be attached to the animal and then connected to a a pin supporting the blade. They'd then whip the animal... Mm. ..the pin would get pulled out and the thief would be executed by his own booty. Becoming an outlaw was one way of avoiding the cow-operated guillotine, but there was another alternative. You could always run like hell to your nearest sanctuary. A lot of people sought sanctuary in the town of Beverley and with good reason. Any criminal on the run was safe once he could reach that stone over there. You see, the area of sanctuary around Beverley was enormous. It stretched in a circle two miles in radius from the city centre, all marked out by these sanctuary stones. Once you reached here or could touch the stone, You were safe from prosecution. In fact, if I had been being pursued, and my pursuer killed me while I was on this side of the stone, he'd have to pay the church a fine of £8. (sighs) Mark, I suppose there'd have to be a few witnesses, but... Here in Beverley, the heart of the sanctuary was the Minster. All consecrated buildings offered sanctuary, a cooling-off period while the clergy attempted to arrange a peaceful conclusion. Generally, you could only seek sanctuary for 40 days, and after that, if no conclusion was arrived at, you would have to leave the country. You'd be provided with a special outfit, carry a homemade wooden cross, have your thumb branded with the letter A, and then be told to hot-put it to your nearest port. The amount of time given to reach the port was seemingly random. One sanctuary man was given three weeks to travel from Norwich to Portsmouth, whereas another unlucky fellow was given just four days for the same journey. Once you reached the seaside, you'd be expected to get the first ship out of England. And for every day you didn't, you had to wade into the sea up to your knees as a sign of your willingness to go. It's the only known instance of paddling being used as a form of punishment. (laughs) For the discriminating sanctuary seeker, however, the most attractive feature about Beverly was that it could offer you protection from prosecution not just for 40 days, but for life. To qualify for a permanent position as a sanctuary man, sanctuary seekers would have to make a full confession of their crime and have it recorded in a register, which was kept here in the Minster at Beverley. I've got a transcript here, and it makes fascinating reading. It seems that um, butchers were the most common perpetrators of violence. Can't think why. While the most frequent debtors were builders. So, not much change there, then. The Minster is visible for miles around, and you can imagine it as a beacon attracting all the thieves and murderers and criminals of England to come and enjoy the amenities of this delightful town. In London, the situation got so out of control Parliament was petitioned over the way violent outlaws and criminals were using sanctuary as a legal hideout. By day, they lie low. And by night, they venture out to commit their murders, robberies and felonies. But it wasn't just the church that was harbouring outlaws. So was that other great pillar of society, the gentry, some of whom were running crime syndicates from their castles. The truth is, there was very little difference between the outlaws and the fighting men of the gentry and aristocratic classes. In fact, very often they were one and the same. The Folville gang, for example, were in cahoots with the nobleman who ran this gaffe, Rockingham Castle. Rockingham is in Northamptonshire, but it borders on three other counties. Leicestershire over there, and Rutland over there, and... Cambridgeshire over there. And it was here that Sir Robert de Vere entertained fugitives and outlaws from all four shires. Sir Robert was meant to be the custodian of this royal castle and the keeper of the royal forest, and yet the whole place was a viper's nest of criminality. One contemporary wrote... Sometimes 20 armed men, sometimes 30, come to Devere at the castle, and they leave at dawn or during the night. He shuts the gate on the side facing the town, and they can leave secretly via a postern. Those bringing provisions to the castle are not allowed to enter, lest they should come to know those armed men. Very hugger No wonder Parliament was repeatedly petitioned in the 14th century to stop these gentry gangs running wild. The Follvils were a pretty rough lot. I mean, their leader, Eustace, had five murders and a rape to his name. And yet, what happened to them? Did they hang on the gallows as they undoubtedly deserved? Well, not exactly. After 16 years of crime, all the surviving Falwells were pardoned, and they died respectable men. Sir Eustace here was even knighted for his good services to the crown. But how could a violent outlaw like Eustace have become one of the king's trusted knights? Well, pardoning outlaws in return for military service allowed the king to harness the skills of these violent men to his own ends, and in the absence of a standing army, the country came to depend on them. In societies where violent conflict was common, courage and aggressiveness were prized qualities in a man. But there was something special about England. In the rest of Europe, knights were aristocrats and knighthood was inherited. But in England, just anyone could win a knighthood. The road to advancement meant being a warrior when there was a war on and, perhaps, a robber when there wasn't. Sometime after his death, one of the chroniclers described Eustace not as a reform murderer and rapist, but as a wild and daring man. The outlaw of reality had become one with the outlaw of legend. The story of Robin Hood wove together the myth of pre-conquest freedom together with the later myths of chivalry and knighthood. The English actually celebrated being a land of bold robbers. (laughs) The story of the outlaw is not to be found on the periphery of English history. It lies close to the heart of what made England, England.